Ahoy oi, and welcome back to the OlgeenScene.com podcast. It has been a minute, but we are back and we have a fantastic show for you today about fads. Yes, that's right. Crazy hairstyles, wild music, wild dances, the whole deal. We are covering it. So stay tuned for fantastic fads on the OlgeenScene.com podcast. Totally, dude. <laughs> like, oh my god, gag me with a spoon. From the toys you had a meltdown in the mall over, to flagpole sitting, to the In My Feelings Challenge, every now and then, someone strikes the cultural knee of the people with a rubber mallet of an idea, and the people kick back reflexively. Kick! Ow! <laughs> <laughs> Psychologists would call the phenomenon, All my friends have that, and I want it too. Don't even lie. You know you had a slap bracelet or a pet rock. Yeah, maybe. And like tons of hand-braided friendship bracelets, scrunchies, a clapper, and even a chia pet. And I know some of you out there crowded into a phone booth or did the Macarena. I even know you had a hat like Blossom or a mullet like Achy Breaky Heart. Oh, God, a mullet. I don't know about that. <laughs> but does a perm count? Because yes, then yes, I did. <laughs> And that knee injury you got snowboarding in high school? Yeah, you got that planking or from parkour and you know it. Yeah, maybe. Or perhaps a scooter-related injury. <laughs> uh, mm. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been swept up in fads faster than broken glass on a pool deck. One thing I've noticed lately is some generational shade being thrown towards these lame new fads. Those big baby boomers are always dunking on their grandkids for eating a Tide Pod like they've never swallowed a live goldfish. The every rainy Gen Xers scoff at the In My Felix Challenge like they've never car surfed like that Frankie Styles guy did in that uh, Teen Wolf movie. So today we're going to fling open the door, flick on the lights, and see what fads, trends, and sensations come scurrying out. Ew, gross! <laughs> <laughs> Teased bangs and frosted tips be damned. We're even going to discuss the lame fads from our day. Let me tell you, not all 90s trends were all that in a bag of chips, folks. Stay tuned and don't touch that dial for Fantastic Fads. And we're back with fantastic fads. The Macarena, Gangnam Style, YMCA, The Electric Slide, Dance Crazes. These are the dances that somehow everyone knew how to do. So while well, we can trace dance crazes back to the 1950s, an even older dance craze was the Dance Marathon. Starting in the 1920s, Dance Marathons became a thing. Hey, this new jazzy music was perfect for partying up all night in the speakeasy. Couples would see who could stay dancing, or at least swaying, the longest. So this is crazy. We really looked into this, and per Wikipedia, dance marathons became popular in the United States during the Great Depression. The popularity of dance marathons began in 1923, when a woman named Alma Cummings danced continuously for 27 hours with six different partners. Wow. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Cummings was a trooper. Uh, or you think they call it. Uh, oh, no, no. <laughs> so after Cummings established her record, dance marathons became very common in the United States. Initially, participants competed in order to break Cummings' record, but later on, people began to compete to win prizes, which could range from money to just publicity. Dance marathons were a huge hit during the Great Depression as they provided contestants and spectators food, shelter, and the opportunity to earn cash prizes wow. at a time when many people needed a meal and free entertainment. Hmm. 
The dances were popular at this time, not only because these events supplied basic entertainment, but they were also popular due to the sadistic pleasure or power <laughs> the audience felt through watching the contestants compete in this grueling event, some often collapsing due to exhaustion. Only, oh my gosh, it's supposed to be a nice dance contest and people are making it into like a gladiators event. <laughs> it's amazing though. I mean, 27 hours is quite a feat. Yeah. Well, the rules vary widely, but one common rule of the marathon stated that the participants could not fall asleep, although some marathons would allow one part of the team to sleep as long as their teammates continued dancing. So there's all kinds of great pictures of them kind of slumped over. <laughs> one partner just completely kind of like... <laughs> Passed out. It was important for the team to keep moving because if they stopped, they would be disqualified from the contest. Contestants were only allowed to leave the dance floor for hygienic or medical purposes to change clothing or other similar circumstances. Diarrhea. (laughs) (laughs) A mixture of other elements were incorporated in the marathons, including elimination sprints, raffles, mud wrestling. How does that work into dancing? And fake weddings of competitors. (laughs) Oftentimes, the music played at a dance marathon changed throughout the duration of it. It consisted of a mix of slow and upbeat music to give the contestants breaks and also to keep them going and energized. Spectators were allowed to come in and watch the marathon, and the contestants kept competing. Often viewers were able to pay 25 cents to watch the marathon for as long as they wished. What a deal. Two bits of gander. (laughs) (laughs) So we read about this more in Uncle John's Bathroom Reader. The first day or two of a dance marathon were relatively easy. As soon as the band struck up the first note, a couple was required only to keep moving. Fancy steps weren't necessary and would only tire them out faster. Dancers took regular breaks to rest their feet or catch a catnap, but as the dancing continued, so did the difficulty. Dancers were allowed mere minutes, again, of rest every few hours. Sleeping while dancing was allowed... As long as one partner could stay awake and hold the sleeper up. (laughs) Soon enough, they became organized affairs with rules and prize money. The depression didn't even slow down this party as more couples would compete for the prize money. Watching the exasperated couples and betting on them became a cheap form of entertainment as well. They bet on them? They did. Oh my gosh. Whole charts. It was a crazy thing. (laughs) Some saw this as exploiting those in need, while others were thankful for the shelter and meals. While they danced, various agencies tried to stop these marathons, but after the outbreak of World War II, the fad mostly died out. In the 1970s, dance marathons returned as a fad, but this time mostly at college campuses with proceeds going to charities. How nice. Today, dance marathons and practice continue out as charity events at colleges, and the spirit of the marathon can be seen on my favorite show, Dancing with the Stars, (laughs) or even online endurance challenges. Although marathons were extremely popular, they were also dangerous. During a marathon in the 1920s, a man named Homer Morehouse was the first contestant to dance in the marathon, but after dancing for 87 hours, he collapsed from exhaustion and died on the dance floor. Good. Gravy. The longest dance lasted seven months from October, I'm sorry, from August 29th, 1931 until April 1st, 1932. The dancers were Edith Bordeaux and partner Mike Ritoff. And the crazy thing is that they only won $2,000. Yeah, but in 1931 money, that was like a billion dollars. No, it wasn't that much. (laughs) (laughs) He was the new Rockefeller. I think in seven months, the two of them could probably have earned about $2,000 just being at their jobs. Well, it was the Great Depression, though. That's true. There weren't that many jobs that you could do. And if you had endurance and a dance bug in you, mm-hmm. you might as well take advantage of a dance marathon. And what if you were like a steam-powered car mechanic? Those were going on the wayside in 1931 and 2. Because of Ford? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, some sort of other uh, job that gets uh, swept away because of technology. Like it's happening today. Bum, bum, bum. 
those robots. They took her down. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't seen any dance marathon robots out there yet. Soon enough. Just wait and see. <laughs> All right, we'll come back with our next fad right after the break. And welcome back. Our next fabulous fad is phone booth stuffing. Cool. In taking part in this event, several college students would squeeze themselves into a telephone booth one after another until no one else would fit. Of course, the more people who could fit in it, the better. And universities everywhere saw students skipping class in order to try and devise a plan to set a new record. The fad is often associated with college students from the West Coast of the United States, but it was in fact started in South Africa. Hmm. 25 students were able to pack in a booth and announce that they had set a world record in doing so. Soon students in England, Canada, and the United States were attempting to top that mark. Some students in England went on diets, (laughs) and some at MIT attempted to use geometry and calculus as a manner of determining the precise method to achieve the highest efficiency for stuffing. Smart. (laughs) When they found themselves unable to pile more and more friends into the booth, they began challenging other universities' credibility (laughs) because of supposed violations of the rules. (laughs) <laughs> the rules and phone booth stuffing. Yeah. The booth, while others specified that someone inside was... Requ- okay, I'm sorry. Some claim participants must keep their entire bodies within the booth, mm-hmm. while others specified that someone inside was required to place a call. <laughs> <laughs> Hello? I'm stuffed in a phone booth. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that that was part of it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you got to make a call or it doesn't count. We're setting a new world record. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Luckily, the fad died out within about a year in the United States, which was 1959. But it was reincarnated in the form of Volkswagen stuffing just a few years later. Yeah. <laughs> I guess they had to practice their tetra skills, huh? <laughs> I like the geekoids uh, figuring out, well, if we use the geometry of the coordinates of the mass of the students, we could calculate the precise velocity to crowd as many of us in here as humanly possible. And I like that they staked the university's credibility. <laughs> credibility. I'm doing uh, air asterisks. <laughs> as if that really meant the university was thriving if they could fit as many mm-hmm. students as possible into one phone booth. It's like, well, I was going to go to Yale, but they didn't get as many students in the phone booth as Princeton. So, Guess I'm going there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a great bad. Yep. Okay, welcome back. That was pretty crazy, but this next fad seems even more dangerous and outrageous than those last two. Are you ready for it? And random. <laughs> Flagpole city. <laughs> I'm sure there's there was a song in the '90s about it, and I'm sure you've seen, at least heard of it. But here's the here's the skinny from Wikipedia. Pole sitting is the practice of sitting on top of a pole. Wow, that's a great deduction. Such as a flagpole for extended lengths of time, generally used as a test of endurance. A small platform is typically placed at the top of the pole for the sitter. Led by the stunt actor and famous and former sailor Alvin Shipwreck Kelly, flagpole sitting was a fad in the mid to late 1920s, but mostly died out after the start of the Great Depression. He may have not have been a great sailor if his name was Shipwreck. (laughs) (laughs) That's why he had to take up flagpole sitting. All he's all he's really doing is just like sitting in the crow's nest. Maybe that was his job. <laughs> then he's like, "Hey, look at me!" It's about all you're good for, man. Get he's, back up there. He is credited with popularizing the pole sitting fad after sitting atop a flagpole in 1924. 
either in response to a dare from a friend or as a publicity stunt to draw customers to a Philadelphia department store. In January of that year, he sat on a pole for 13 hours and 13 minutes to publicize a movie. Wow. Soon enough, copycats were shipping up flagpoles all over the place. I guess it helped that this took place at a time when skyscrapers were popping up all over mm. and everybody wanted to be the first to climb on top of one of those things. And I guess the spirit of flagpole sitting lives on with those guys in Russia and all over, frankly, that are screwing up to the pinnacles of various tall structures and getting the most insane climb video for the Internet. Oh, I've seen these. It's <laughs> nuts. They've got like a selfie stick <laughs> and then they're sitting on the top of this building, I'm sure, which is completely illegal. Uh-huh. And they're getting these incredible shots. They're going like 2,000 feet up in the air. Like a construction crane and going across like monkey bars. I'm sure it's extremely <laughs> dangerous, but it's a really cool video uh, like your your heart is just pounding you feel dizzy like i i don't think i could watch that in vr if that's available oh, that no. would just like because watching it on the screen is hard enough well this is crazy i can't believe that these people would go up there and do that as a uh, a fabulous fad but mm-hmm. there we go here we go all right stay tuned for our next fad there. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is by far the easiest way to get whatever it is you do online. Trust me, if Mike Dude could figure it out, come on guys, you could figure it out too. So check out Squarespace, the easiest way to get your stuff online. We shimmied down the flagpole, and we're back. (laughs) (laughs) So Mike and I grew up in the 1980s. It was a simpler time. No internet, no outlandish Twitter feeds, Snapchat filters, or going viral yet. Although America's Funniest Home Videos made its debut in November of 1989. Mm. Yet still... We all seem to be tuned in to Saturday morning cartoons, and those commercials led us to some incredible toys of the day. Do you guys remember Sit and Spin? Mm-hmm. Cabbage Patch Kid Dolls? Mm-hmm. Etch-A-Sketch? Oh, yeah. The Care Bears? Mm-hmm. Magna-Doodle? Oh yeah, that was fun. Chinese Jump Rope? Mm, yeah, that was, a... that was my thing. Gem <laughs> <laughs> and the Holograms? Even I like Gem. She was just the best. My buddy and kid sister. Mm-mm. They kind of reminded me of Chucky. Mm-mm. Creepy. Mm. Creepy, I didn't have one. <laughs> Pound puppies. Oh, yeah. She-Ra. Oh, she was awesome. Slip and slide. Uh, if you weren't getting hurt, you weren't having fun on slip and slide. <laughs> we never got hurt on slip and slide. It was awesome. Candyland. Mm-hmm. Strawberry shortcake. Uh, yeah, that was a thing. Mine still smells like strawberries. Wow, can you imagine those chemicals? <laughs> I have no idea what was in there. <laughs> My Little Pony. Mm-hmm. Teddy Ruxpin. Wow. Yeah, I remember those were fun commercials. I'm Teddy Ruxpin. Alf. Mm-hmm. Which I heard is coming back. Yep. And my very favorite, Rainbow Bright. Yeah. I even dressed up as her for Halloween when I was like <laughs> six. My mom made me this beautiful costume with an orange yarn wig and a side ponytail. I've got to include that picture in our blog. Uh, I know. You always include it everywhere. It's, a, it's amazing. <laughs> she did a phenomenal job. But I was definitely a child of the 80s. Oh, yeah. And let's not forget about Micro Machines, Transformers, Star Wars action figures, Garbage Pail Kids, WWF, He-Man, and the Masters of the Universe. Yeah. Casio Keyboards. Yeah. Skateboards. Uh-oh. Glowworm. <laughs> yeah. Light Bright. Mm-hmm. Operation. <laughs> yeah. Slime. The Rubik's Cube. Super Mario Brothers, Speak and Spell, and one of my favorite, Super Soakers. Oh, no. Now, Super Soakers were a game changer in the silly water pistol fight was merely a nuisance where the Super Soakers were giving you a full-on hose-level soaking. <laughs> Absolutely drenched. So, whereas before, you were just kind of in a nun, just a little oh, pea little shooter, sport. and you're like, oh, Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) When the super soakers came around, you were now walking around with 
a garden hose powered, <laughs> just ridiculous stream of pressured water that that seems so powerful. It seemed a little bit dangerous. I hated those things. <laughs> I preferred like water balloon tosses or you know friendly splashing at pool parties. But to be super soaked, well, OMG. Well, the huge jump in soaking technology came about from none other than a NASA engineer. Wow. Yes, the search for a better way to cool the space fridge full of tang on the space shuttle, (laughs) yes, this is true, eventually led to unprovoked soakings of friends and siblings everywhere. How? Something about the gas expansion, refrigeration system, pressure test, or some shit like that. (laughs) (laughs) Nice and technical. It was NASA. Dang. (laughs) Wikipedia explains, in 1982, Air Force and NASA engineer Lonnie Johnson conceived of the idea of a pressurized water gun after shooting a powerful stream of water in his bathroom while performing experiments for a new type of refrigeration system. Several months later, he built a prototype in his basement. Johnson originally wanted to produce the toy himself, but realized that the costs were out of his reach. He attempted to arrange partnerships with toy companies to bring the product to market. It was not until 1989 that he found success. Well, at the American International Toy Fair in New York City, he met the vice president of a toy company, Laramie, who showed interest in his idea. In 1982, Johnson decided to shift his focus from his current scientific career at NASA to the Super Soaker because the Super Soaker could potentially create enough funding for his own research goals. Wow, so he was going to fund his own research goals with a Super Soaker. Kids were buying those Super Soakers up. (laughs) So all those hours blasting high-pressure, warm water hose-scented tap water at Friends (laughs) was brought to us by a NASA engineer turn water gun inventor Lonnie Johnson. Those super soakers were perfect for ruining all the fantastic hairdos and styles and makeup of the late 1980s. Oh man, you're telling me. Do you remember the super soaker party we had for you? Oh, that was delightful. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Why don't you go ahead and explain? Uh, We went ahead and I brought Mike over to Lacey Park where all of his friends were waiting with super soakers. Mm -hmm. We had him blindfolded and put into the middle of the park and all of his I don't know, 15 or 20 friends unleashed the super soaker on I woke him. up to a fire well, not woke up, was unblindfolded to a firing squad. Unfortunately, the hose water that they had used before I even got there mm-hmm. was very hot. Huh. <laughs> and so Mike was blasted in the face with extremely hot water. At least I armed you. I mm-hmm. gave you something to fight back with. Yes. <laughs> but you were pretty soaked. Yeah. Yes, I was. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> when we come back, it's nothing but big hair and shoulder pads. Get ready for it on Fabulous Fads. And welcome back. Crazy mullets, big permed hair, parachute or MC Hammer pants, rubber bracelets, swatches, ooh, fanny packs, mm-hmm. leg warmers, lots of crazy neon colors, hyper color, yeah. tie-dye, denim, lace, blue eyeshadow, LA gear shoes, mm-hmm. jazzercise leotards, ooh, fun. jellies. You know you had some. Oh, no. Not you. (laughs) (laughs) Acid washed everything. Oversized sweatshirts that fall down over one shoulder. Members only jackets. Pretty slick. Track suits. Yes, my favorite. Bicycle shorts. (laughs) Studio glamour photos with that white feather boa and faux mink wrap. And so many unspeakable fashion faux pas that teens from that time might pray we all forget. <laughs> Let's think of the pictures out there. <laughs> I'm glad I was a kid. Uh-huh. <laughs> what would possess you to get these outlandish styles? Well, you see, kids, before the internet, <laughs> your choices for emulating influencers was extremely limited. Mm-hmm. 
Rather than going to cool people's Insta or YouTube channel for styling tips, the major influencers were the celebs and models, and that was about it. <laughs> yep. So in the 80s, all it took was a few celebs on coke benders, dressing outlandishly, and poof! The whole world is wearing ten-story tall hair and five layers of makeup and piano key ties and nippers only jackets again. <laughs> Salons loved these hair, makeup, and manicure styles. Now, in case you made it all the way into the salon in the 1980s and 90s, and we're getting cold feet about that mile-high perm, you might have noticed some art prints on the wall. You know, the ones an illustrated picture of a dark-haired model looking enticingly at you. They're mostly in black and white, but often with red lips and one other sharp color like purple. There was usually one or two framed pics of these girls that looked like real art and a few knockoff cheap copycat styles that were meant to model the hairstyles or represent the salon itself. So what was the deal with those pictures? <laughs> well, according to Wikipedia, in the 1970s, this artist Nagel began creating illustrations for Playboy magazine. Ah. And that work, coupled with the new wave LA style of graphic art, shaped the work we know Nagel for today. From the years 1976 to his death in 1984, Nagel created over 400 original works of his signature woman. Wow. Usually bare-chested with a wink and perfectly shaped brow, the Nagel woman gained massive mainstream popularity with her in-your-face sexuality. <laughs> Nagel usually began his process from a photograph of a model, then created a drawing, distilling it down to the model's beauty into the most graphic lines and curves. The resulting work became the new pinup for many in the 1980s, a distant, attractive, self-possessed woman. So how did this art end up in the salon? Well, Nagel died unexpectedly in 1984. His estate flooded the market with lithographs and posters by the millions, right at the time when the business at salons was booming, because, and so they were looking up to class up the place with some, uh, with some art. Salon owners love these prints. Besides being inexpensive and available, the women depicted in the artwork were exactly the type of customer they wanted to attract. With the nail salon industry booming in large cities, especially New York, Nagel-inspired artwork began appearing in window displays. Using the old adage of projecting the image of the client you want to attract, the now counterfeit image of the Nagel woman was the ultimate client. Huh. Wearing long red enhancements, the illustrations played off the woman's desire to make herself into that image. The pull was easy and the sale made sense. Come to the nail salon and leave looking like the object of everyone's desires. Elegant, sexy, and polished. <laughs> Talking about nail salon pics, I remember going to Lily Nails when I was in high school up the street, and mm -hmm. they had these really outdated 16 by 20 posters up of these crazy long nails with mm -hmm. decorations galore mm -hmm. and soft focus lenses while oh, they're yeah. clutching a cheap plastic rose. <laughs> oh my God, super tacky mm -hmm. and over. You know, with some spritz on it to look like uh, it was real. <laughs> Yikes! The hairstyles that showed up in salons were even worse, though. Omg, teased out, Farrah Fawcett hair sprayed to no end. The model looking straight at the cameraman's soul, as if to say, "You want this haircut? I know you do." <laughs> Crazy. Now, for us fellas, for us fellas, the style you might have seen at the salon was a style that was short in the front and long in the back. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. There are variations of this basic premise. All short in the front and long in the back styles are mullets. But how short in the front and how long in the back is the difference between a Camaro crash helmet and a Kentucky waterfall, or a Nebraska neck warmer, or a Tennessee top hat? Without a good stylist, the Billy Ray Cyrus may be the achy, breaky, big mistakey. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike the Nagel prints on the wall, cheesy headshots modeling the multitude of styles could easily be found on the table in the waiting room. So you could take it to the stylist and say, give me one of these. 
in the 1970s and 80s, this was just another haircut that was a favorite of hockey players and other jock types. Then, like a lot of things from this time, it started to get oversaturated. By the 1990s, the tide started to turn on this quaff. Thank God. (laughs) The word mullet, as we understand it today, seems to have been bestowed upon society by the Beastie Boys, of all things. No way. I had no idea what their correlation to this was. Huh. But uh, they used it in a song, and they called somebody like a mullet head. Uh-huh. And, and then that was it. So they coined it. Yeah. Interesting. And, and what's weird is, like, I always knew it was sort in the front lawn and the back, and there was a song by Homegrown about oh, yeah. that. Uh, SFLB. That's right. Yeah. It was all about a jerky person with the mullet. Yuck. <laughs> <laughs> According to less authoritative source from the Oxford English Dictionary, the hip-hop-slash-punk band apparently coined and certainly popularized the descriptor in the 1994 song. The modern popularity of the mullet is ascribed to a glam rock superstar, an all-around weird guy, David Bowie, who in 1972 adopted the hairstyle for his onstage alter ego, Ziggy Stardust. Though the post-millennial irony drum descriptor business in the front, party in the back, is of unknown origin and likely a bit of cultural flotsam. Oh, God. It seems to have gained widespread popularity in 2000 when Georgia native Matt Smith, a proud mullet enthusiast, though not an adopter himself, uttered it at MTV's The Real World. Former Beatle Paul McCartney. Uh, further solidified the mullet's pace, place in top culture when he began a long and storied relationship with the hairstyle in the mid-1970s. Critics were not pleased. One, one writer complained that the mullet made Paul look like an acolyte of Florence Henderson. Oh, boom, roasted. Boom, roasted. <laughs> with that, we shall move on and take a look at some of today's blunders. And we're whisked back into modern day. Boop. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Sir Drake has caused a bit of a stir this summer. Or shall I say, steer. Ah. <laughs> with the In My Feelings Challenge. In this challenge, you get out of a moving car while dancing and lip singing uh, to the song for web video purposes. So what is the In My Feelings Challenge, and where did it originate? Uh, well, it started with a guy doing the uh, dance on YouTube. In just a few weeks, more than 400,000 posts populated hashtag In My Feelings Challenge hashtag on Instagram. Wow. But it all started with Instagram user The Shiggy Show. On June 29th, the widely followed comedian shared a video of himself Dancing, or doing the shiggy, as he calls it, in the street and using moves that perfectly synced up to Drake's lyrics. When Drake sang, Kiki, do you love me? He made a heart gesture with his hands, and he made a driving motion with his arms for the Are You Riding line of the song. It's not certain how the getting out of the moving car aspect of the fad got started, but getting out of a moving car while doing the shiggy became the super relative internet sensation of summer 2018. It's true. I've also seen the epic fails. This provided us. The falls and the running overs. In a foreign country riding alongside a bike doing the same (laughs) dance. In the middle of nowhere. (laughs) It is not a good idea to get out of your vehicle, no matter what that vehicle is, to do a dance and let your car drive on its own. There's like people with a wagon and a go. Like getting out of this, it's unbelievable <laughs> how far this thing goes. So there we are scoffing at some new fabulous fads, but I just think that this one is the worst. <laughs> well, now before you go judging the youngster in your life for this, <laughs> I've got two words for you. 
Frankie motherfucking Styles. Mm. That's right. 1985's Teen Wolf, where Michael J. Fox and his friend Frankie Styles literally surf on top of a moving vehicle. Yep. Otherwise known as car surfing, and then later on as ghost riding. So, listen, oldies. Just because you don't even know who Drake is doesn't mean you've ever not done something dumb in a moving car, okay? Okay, that's true. That's true. (laughs) All fine and good for dumb dances and moving cars. But what about the geniuses eating Tide Pods, might you ask? (laughs) Fair enough. Why did teens start doing this on purpose? Because the teens had been doing it by accident. Oh, my gosh. The U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission issued a warning to parents several years ago about the liquid laundry detergent packets. The agency said the capsules, which are colorful, squishy, and smell good, are attractive to young children, (laughs) but contain highly concentrated toxic detergent that could cause harm. So a couple of dumb kids indeed eat them and get sick. A lot of people found it to be hilarious, found that just that idea to be hilarious. So, of course, the meme started, adding fuel to the pyre. And yes, I said pyre. (laughs) (laughs) In 2015, The Onion published a satirical op-ed piece from the perspective of a toddler who wanted to eat them. At some point, the pods become alluring to older children. Last year, College Humor published a video titled, Don't Eat the Laundry Pods. Seriously, they're poison. It showed a college student researching the dangers associated with the exposure to the packets and then devouring them. (laughs) He ended up on an ambulance stretcher. (laughs) Soon enough, older kids were eating them as a way to mock the younger kids eating them. And of course, make a viral video. Yes, that is incredibly stupid, but up, 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 boomers. Not so fast. There is another dumb challenge that you might have wanted everyone to forget. And that fat is swallowing goldfish. Though most fads seem to spring up from nowhere, goldfish swallowing can be traced back to one individual and one specific date. March 3rd, 1939, Harvard student Lothop Withington Jr. swallowed a live goldfish to win a $10 bet. Days later, not to be outdone, a college student in Pennsylvania downed three seasoned with salt and pepper. Mmm, delicious. When a fellow classmate upped the ante to six goldfish, the gauntlet had been thrown down and the fad spread like wildfire on campuses across the country. Before the gold crit goldfish craze fad faded a few months later thousands of goldfish had met their gruesome ends and even coeds had taken up the challenge let's make no bones about it eating a tide pot is unbelievably dumb foaming at the mouth dumb (laughs) (laughs) but and this is a big button (laughs) at least they're only hurting themselves Mm mm-hmm if they had a YouTube channel and ran ads, they might make some lettuce if the if the video goes viral. Mm-hmm. You baby boomers that ate that goldfish, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> you subjected a fish to a grisly death, and for what? You feel big now, Earl? <laughs> How about you, Agnes? <laughs> I know there's some smug oldies out there that know damn well they swallowed a goldfish, making Tide Pod jokes out there. Oh, man. You know who you are. Stick to uh, cooked fish, people. (laughs) All right, we come back. We're going to talk about some more fantastic fans. And we're back. We're time traveling back to the 90s. Okay. You know what would be fun? What? Stacking up cardboard circles and seeing how many you could knock over. What? <laughs> no, this one I just never got. No. Pogs. Ugh. If you don't know what they were, they were these cardboard circles about the diameter of a casino chip and about as thick as a book cover. 
They had buzzwords or licensed characters on them. The idea was to collect them and play a game with them. The game was to stack up the cardboard pogs and throw down a heavier plastic or metal pog and see how many cardboard pogs would bounce off the stack. If you think this sounds kind of sad, like a boring game your grandfather who grew up during the Depression might play when he was a kid, uh, you wouldn't be far from the truth. (laughs) (laughs) All right, for the story of this, we go... Consult the Oracle of the Ages, Wikipedia. <laughs> the Halakala Dairy of Maui sold a mixed fruit drink in a glass bottle with a cap under the brand name of Pog. Hmm. In 1955, the Halakala discontinued using the glass containers, but continued making the caps to allow the game to be played. I think we jumped ahead there, but... Orchards in Hawaii also continued to make milk caps after having stopped using glass bottles. In 1991, Halakala expanded to the more populated Oahu Island, which led to a revival of the game. With the revival, the Pog name began being used generically for the game, rather than the juice, I guess. In the 1990s, the revival is credited to Blossom Gel Sibo, a teacher and guidance counselor who taught at Wailua Elementary School in Oahu. In 1991, Gel Biso introduced the game she had played as a girl to a new generation of students, soon incorporating milk caps into her fifth grade curriculum as a way of teaching math and as a nonviolent alternative to other popular schoolyard games, such as dodgeball. Oh, yeah. <laughs> The game quickly spread from Oahu's North Shore, and by early 1992, the Stand Pack Incorporated, the small Canadian packaging company that had been manufacturing the milk caps, distributed by Halakela Dairy on Maui, the same caps that had been collected by Gel Biso for her class, was printing millions of milk caps every week for shipment to the Hawaiian Islands chain. The game soon spread to the mainland, first surfacing in California, Texas, Oregon, and Washington, before spreading to the rest of the country. By 1993, the previously obscure game of milk caps, which had almost been forgotten, was now played throughout the world. Real milk caps had small staples in them when stacked and produced a random element to the game. Regular milk caps were used to throw at the stack and were able to flip the pile. Milk caps returned to the popularity when the World of Pog Federation and the Canada Games Company reintroduced them under the Pog name brand in the 1990s. The Pog Fad soared and peaked in the mid-1990s. Okay, whew, that's quite a story for a really dev game. (laughs) Now, I remember some kids had whole binders with special pages for the good Pogs. Oh yeah, like baseball cards or coin collectors. I mean, people were serious about this stuff. Now, if I really think about it, were Pogs really less or really less dumb than comics or trading cards or like the stuff you just mentioned? Well, objectively, yes. Pogs were lame. <laughs> <laughs> the game was lame. Well, there are some popular character Pogs. Most just had bright colors with maybe a phrase like tubular with an exclamation point. <laughs> the worst were the ones that businesses would give out as a promotion to try to be hip. Want to see my Remax Pac Bell Pogs or VMA Pogs? Oh my god, I never understood these. It was kind of a guy's game, thank goodness. Yeah, there was like these whole binders. People would be like, Want to see my Pogs again? <sighs> yeah, at least comics had really cool characters and storylines, and they were the springboard for cartoons and video games and toys. Awesome movies wouldn't come along until well into the 21st century. So, while comics and pogs were mostly gigantic wastes of time, <laughs> to me there seemed to be a lot more value in the stories and characters that comics had, and that really got the old uh, imagination fired up instead of just smashing piles of caps. <laughs> so while on the surface comics and trading cards can seem dumb as pogs, they're a little bit more substantive than they might seem. Mm-hmm. Now, unless you're into sports, then all Pogs, comics, trading cards, 
might as well be Dungeons and Dragons. Right. And you would have thought it was all, well, uh, lame. Mm-hmm. Only you wouldn't say lame. You would say an offensive word you can't say anymore that was lamely used in place of lame. <laughs> <laughs> Sports weren't my forte, so I have no idea what trends happen with that. Well, actually, when I thought back, the first thing that came to mind was how 31 flavors would serve ice cream sundaes in a plastic team hat. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. How about you? Did you have any sportsy or active trends, toys, anything like that? You mentioned something that looked like Saturn the other day. What was the, the deal with that? Oh, yeah. I can't remember what that bouncy ball thing was called, but you basically, uh, looks like Saturn, you put your feet on it, and you mm. bounce up and down kind of like a pogo stick. Mm. What was that thing called? I don't know, but it seems like you would always, like, it would be so easy to just topple forward. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a face smasher. For sure. Even worse than the moon shoes. Uh, yeah, right on par there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Skip It was probably one of my favorite things to do that was a little bit more active. And like I'd mentioned previously, Chinese jump rope. Mm. At least it's not ice cream. No. <laughs> hogs. All right. When we come back, we are going to talk about the big one, the peak of all fats, when we come back. And welcome back. All right. Are you ready for it? The most fantastic fad we uh, researched? I am. That fantastic fad is... <gasps> Beanie Babies! Beanie Babies! Oh my gosh. So from Wikipedia, Mm -hmm. nine original Beanie Babies were launched in 1993. Legs the Frog, Squealer the Pig, Spot the Dog, Flash the Orca, Splash the Whale, Chocolate the Moose, Patty the Platypus, I had that one, Brownie the Bear, Later renamed Cubby the Bear. Oh. And Pinchers the Lobster. Oh. With some egg terrors. Uh, sorry, tag. <laughs> egg terrors. Tag. Tag errors. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> some tag errors saying Punchers the Lobster. Punchers the Lobster. <laughs> Which I think is hilarious. <laughs> Because if he had, like, little boxing gloves. Yeah, lobster blood, that would be awesome. He's like, put up your dukes, put them on with the lobster claws. No pinching, punching. Put them up. Yeah, those claws kind of look like, uh, you know, boxing gloves, old tiny ones. You're right. (laughs) So they were not in factory production until 1994. Sales were slow at first, but at that point, by 1995, many many retailers refused to buy the products... In the bundles that TY offered because others outright refused to buy them in any form. Their popularity soon grew. However, first starting locally in Chicago before growing into a national craze in the USA. By 1996, TY Incorporated released a new product called Teeny Babies, a miniature offshoot of the original Beanie Babies line. They were sold alongside McDonald's Happy Meals to celebrate that product's 17th anniversary. Thai Incorporated stopped producing the product in December of 1999, but consumer demand led them to reconsider. Production restarted in 2000 with a beanie baby named The Beginning. Now, from the perspective of what it was like on the ground at the time, (laughs) I remember it taking off from, like, a cute stuffed animal gift shop type toy to a collector's item to an investment really quickly. Right? Investment. They always said that. It hit peak extra when the Home Shopping Channel started selling them. Only they weren't selling them on the regular shows where Grandma bought, like, costume jewelry from a Floridian stepwife. No, they were sold on the late night show, one that generally sold sports memorabilia. No Stepford wife hosting that show. Instead, it was like a mulleted, mustachioed, boorish man. A true junk, drunken uncle type. Usually shouted at the camera why it would be your financial ruin not to buy a limited Reggie Jackson baseball card or Joe Namath football. 
Now, Pinchy the Lobster here, you gotta have. No, only instead of a genuine reproduction autographed football in an acrylic case, it was Pinchy the Lobster. <laughs> and now, not investing in him would bring your would bring your financial ruin. In fact, not only will you miss out on an investment opportunity, you'll be kicking yourself for missing out. No, why? <laughs> Lots of shouting mixed with hushed tones for effects and sentences that begin like, let me tell you something, folks. Of course, the party ended with Beanie Babies as it busts for all things. Aw, from Fortune. The first signs of the crash came in 1999. One night when the company announced which set of toys it would retire, hordes of Beanie Baby-loving eBay watchers sat in front of their computers, hitting refresh on the auction site, waiting for the attendant to rise in prices that had greeted previous toys' retirements. When nothing happened, it triggered the equivalent of a market sell-off. The situation was not dissimilar to the dot-com bubble or the housing crash. Except the prices never recovered. Bum, bum, bum. But still I wonder how many safes, deposit boxes, and mattresses are still stuffed with these cute little critters in hopes of a big payoff someday. Oh, man. <laughs> Tough stuff. It's hard to make an investment in something like that and realize you've wasted your money. You go to clean out Grandma's house and you realize there's like... 25 boxes of Beanie Babies that she brought from the Home Shopping Channel. Oh, man. (laughs) Maybe someday they'll pay off. Maybe someday. So what have we learned about all these crazy trends and fads? Well, for me, it's that there's tremendous power in the hive mind that sees someone doing something seemingly cool and thinks, I want to be cool, too. (laughs) True. Oh, man. What new trends do you think we have to look forward to? Oh, gosh. With things going viral, it could be anything. Uh A song can trigger it. A a web video. Uh Doing something dumb. Uh Blowing a toad on your head. Hey, you never know. Hanging an onion from your belt. Cat videos. Uh (laughs) Well, cat videos, obviously. (laughs) Anything can be a crazy, fantastic fad and trend. So, are we telling the listeners to go out there and make up their own crazy fad? Hey, why not? As long as it's not super dangerous. Well, the the um, in my feelings challenge is super dangerous, and so is eating Tide Pods. <laughs> okay, so think of a safe challenge, folks. A safe, wonderful, wonderful challenge to bring forth into the world. And get everybody copying you. Because it's so cool. So rad. (laughs) (laughs) We're in 2018, man. It's time to make a change. Get out there and make your own. Or bring back old styles. Like, we could go out. I could get my tips frosted again. You could get the Rachel hairstyle. Oh, yeah. The layers. Layers. What do you think? Mm, (laughs) It's a thought. I don't know that they need to come back. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, especially those 80s styles. Woo. Woo. All right. Well, thanks a lot for listening to this show uh, where we remember the lame things that we love. Now, don't forget to start some more trends of your own, like we said. And thanks again. 